0: January 20th of 1942 is a day that will live in infamy. Dozens of members of the senior staff of the Third Reich gathered together outside of Berlin to put together a plan to annihilate the Jews. This plan that they came up with had a name called the Final Solution. The Final Solution had two phases. The first phase was death squads, where soldiers would gather Jews together and murder them. The second phase was deportation to extermination camps. That cold day in January was a dark day in history. Well, there was another dark day that took place 2,500 years ago in the nation of Persia. On this day, there was another plan to destroy the Jews throughout 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It's a dark day for God's people. And that's what we see happening here in Esther chapter 3. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Esther chapter 3. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family called Unseen Sovereigns in which we are walking through the book of Esther together, and we're seeing how God is at work behind the scenes. Even throughout the entire book, he never speaks, he never performs a miracle. There is never a moment where it says, thus says the Lord. God is silent throughout the book. He is unseen, and yet he is working. He is behind the scenes, providentially working and navigating through circumstances for the good of his people and the fame of his name. The story began as... All Stories Do, back in chapter 1, with King Ahasuerus throwing a wild party for his people. After having too much to drink, he commands his wife, Queen Vashti, to come out and show off her beauty to all of the drunk partiers. She says no, so the king unseats the queen and makes a nationwide search for her replacement. Lo and behold, she's right there in the city of Susa, and her name is Esther. She's beautiful, she's wise, she's submissive, and unbeknownst to anyone else, she's Jewish. The only other person who knows of her ethnicity is her cousin Mordecai, who also is the one who adopted her. Boy, I tell you, the book of Esther, this would make a compelling daytime TV soap opera. I mean, Days of Our Lives has nothing on the book of Esther. Well, as we look looked at last week Mordecai he spoils an assassination attempt on the king and he does so by reporting the two culprits who were guards at the palace and they were executed for their crime and it's at this point that the story could have come to a close and the curtain would fall and it could have been a happily ever after ending chapter 2 comes to a stop and Esther is queen Mordecai saves the king end of story everybody's happy but that's not what God did God has a bigger plan. He is about to invite and include the entire nation of Persia on his plan of this drama that's about to unfold. He's about to display his glory in a big way for everyone to see. And he does so by creating a very dark backdrop. It's a dark, depressing day in the life of his people. I want you to see, it's in your notes here. The dark day for God's people, it consisted first of Haman's promotion. Haman's promotion. Look at verse one. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. Now, what a transition from chapter 2 into chapter 3. Mordecai just saved the king's life in chapter 2, and now some guy named Haman has been promoted to number 2 over all of the country. The author is forcing the reader to say to themselves, that's not right. It's not supposed to be this way. This is not fair. Haman is promoted and Mordecai is forgotten. And not only that, the king commanded, verse 2, people to bow down and pay homage to him. But Mordecai wasn't having it. He refused to take a knee. He refused to bow down to Haman, which led to number two, Mordecai's protest. Verse 2, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or praying homage, he was filled with rage. Now notice the reason for why Mordecai refused to bow. Verse 4. He told them he was a Jew. Now this is the opposite counsel that he gave Esther back in chapter 2, verses 10 and 20. But here, Mordecai is compelled to declare his why. He's telling them why he refuses to bow down, and it's because he's a Jew. He will not bow down and worship anyone except for the Lord. Now, God's people have a history of protest. In Exodus chapter 1, we see the Hebrew midwives who reject Pharaoh's command, and they refuse to kill the Jewish baby boys. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down to the golden image put up by King Nebuchadnezzar. In Acts 5, the apostles refused to stop preaching the gospel. And they declared, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. When Roman citizens used to throw their babies into the trash can that they didn't want anymore, the early church would refuse to allow that to become a cultural norm, and the early church was rescuing orphans from trash heaps. We see William Tyndale When he was commanded to stop translating the Bible into the English language, he refused, and it eventually led to him being burned at the stake. You see, when the world rises up against God's word, God's people take a stand in protest. That's what we see Mordecai doing here in chapter 3. But with our stand, we must be prepared for consequences. Okay, Mordecai, he took his stand, but notice in verse 5, it filled Haman with rage. Now, Haman was a narcissistic, evil, prideful, selfish, powerful man. He hated the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him. He was burning with anger. And now Haman, he had the power to kill Mordecai, y'all. He had the authority. He could have easily ordered his execution, but that wasn't enough for him, which led to number three, Haman's proposal. Haman's proposal, look at verse six. It says that when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. So he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. Now, you see, it wasn't enough for Haman just to take out one guy he had beef with. No, he wanted to take down all of his people. So Haman's proposal, it was not unlike Nazi Germany in 1930s and 40s. His anti-Semitic plan to exterminate the Jews, it begins to unfold, verse 7, and it's ugly. It says, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the purr, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month. And it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. You see, in verse 7, we see Haman, he's consulting the purr, which is a type of dice that would be rolled. Do you remember the magic eight ball at Cracker Barrel in the kids' section? You would take that magic eight ball, you would ask a question, shake it up, and then turn it over, and it would give you an answer. Well, that's kind of like what the purr is. That's what casting lots is. You would ask a question, roll the dice, and whatever came up, that is what the plan was. That was your answer. But you see, we know who the one is who is sovereign over the future, Proverbs 16:33 says the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see God is the one who providentially rules over all things including the outcome of the roll of the dice. You see the unseen sovereign dictates every roll of the dice. And even as Haman is scheming how to expunge the Jews from the kingdom, God was working even through the casting of the purr. Now, Haman knew that this was going to work. He needed the king to sign off on it. So Haman, verse 8, brings a proposal to the king. It says, verse 8, Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, There's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate "'Their laws are different from everyone else's "'and they do not obey the king's laws. "'It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. "'If the king approves, let an order be drawn up "'authorizing their destruction, "'and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials "'for deposits in the royal treasury.'" Haman's proposal to the king was a mixture of half-truths and outright lies, But he's quite the salesman because he's got the king thinking, I can not only get rid of all these people who are against me, but I can also increase the money in my pocket. The question is, how would Haman get the 375 tons of silver? Well, he's counting on the plunder of the Jews, which we're about to see in verse 13. That money that they're going to take from the Jews is going to come back to the royal treasury, which according to some scholars is two-thirds of the empire's total revenue for that year. Well, Hashuarus, he likes the sound of that. And so it leads to number four, the king's permission. The king's permission. Verse 10, the king removed his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to Haman. Now you see, this, this king's signet ring, it was like his own personal signature. The seal mark of the king would be placed on any official document. In essence, what we see here is Haman now has the power to write any law he wants to. Could you imagine if you had that kind of power? Could you imagine if you had the ability to write any law and it would come to fruition? Well, that's the power that we see that Haman has right here in the text. But not only does Haman have all of the king's authority, I want you to see that here in verse 11. He also has the king's mastercard. The king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fits. So Ahasuerus only gave Haman unlimited authority. He now has unlimited resources. The king is like, here, take the American Express. There is no limit. Spend as much as you want. Sign my name to anything, whatever you want. You can see how the the deck is getting stacked up against the Jews. Well, immediately Haman gets to work. Look at verse 12. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. This is a dark day for God's people. Haman is in charge. He's been given unlimited resources, unlimited authority, And he has one plan, and that's to exterminate all Jews throughout Persia. You can imagine the panic that ensued throughout the kingdom. Okay, so what what do we take away from this text? Let me give you four takeaways from the text. And the first is, beloved, be willing to be hated. Be willing to be hated. Mordecai was just fine being hated by Haman. He was willing to be hated because he knew who he who he belonged to. So you don't miss that. When when you know whose you are, you are willing to endure the hatred of others. Jesus told us to expect hatred. In John 15 18, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. First John 3 13 Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Hear me. If you stand for Christ, you will be hated. There'll be those who cannot stand you because it's ultimately not you, it's Christ in you that they cannot stand. And it's the light of the glory of Christ exposing the darkness in their hearts. John 3, the world is in the dark and they hate the light, Jesus tells us. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remember whose you are. A servant is not greater than his master. If they hated Jesus, they will hate us too. And if you're gonna stand for Jesus, you must be willing to be hated. Number two, you have to choose compromise or conviction. Compromise or conviction. Conviction. Mordecai was faced with a decision. Bow his knee to Haman or stand firm. Now you can imagine the fear pressure that Mordecai was experiencing as the members of the royal staff are all bowing down and there he is standing firm. Well, here in the text, we see the royal staff, they're warning him, verse four, day after day, day after day, day after day. Now that phrase, day after day, it shows up earlier in Genesis chapter 39, verse 10, when Joseph is in the home of Potiphar. And it says that day after day, Potiphar's wife implored him to come sleep with her. And yet, day after day, Joseph said no. He stood firm on his conviction. He would not compromise. You may be tempted day after day, invited, wooed, implored to compromise. May I say to you, stand firm in Christ. Every day you may be tempted with pornography. Every day you may be tempted to go back to drugs, to go back to alcohol, to go back to your old way of life. Man, I say to you, stand firm. Every day you may be tempted to compromise your character, to compromise morally, ethically, or spiritually. But you must stand firm in your convictions in Christ. You see, conviction means you're willing to stand alone when everyone else bows down. Conviction means that you're going in the opposite direction of the rest of the world. Like walking into a stadium when everyone else is walking out. Walking through the hallway of high school and it's lunch break and everyone's going one way and you're going the opposite. That's the call of the Christian life in which if we're gonna have conviction, we're gonna be going against the grain of the rest of the world around us. This is the call of the Christian. It's not the call to acquiesce to culture. It's not the call to be like everybody else. It's not the call to be liked by the crowd. You've gotta be willing to be hated and understand that if you're going to stand firm with conviction, you cannot compromise. Which means that you and I, we've got to put our face in the book. We've got to get into the Bible and be crystal clear on our understanding of what it says. And then we stand there. You've got to make up your mind right now. You have to choose, here I stand. I can do no other. I'm standing firm in Christ. This is what we see Mordecai doing here in the text. He's standing firm while there's a sea of royal officials bowing to Haman, and he says, No dice. I'm standing firm upon my conviction. I'm a Jew and I bow to no one except the Lord. You see, people are watching you. They're watching to see how you're going to respond when you're the butt of the jokes, when culture goes one way, and how are they going to respond? Are you going to compromise or are you going to stand with conviction? You have to choose. In 2011, Christy and I, we came to Westwood um, for an interview, for me to be interviewed as the student pastor, and a part of the interview process was having teenagers come and ask us questions, and so I remember, <laughs> I was in that room right out there, and I got probably eight or nine teenagers there in front of me. First question, Auburn or Alabama, (laughs) you have to choose. And I thought, where is God calling us? (laughs) Who are these people? (laughs) And now I'm one of you. Like, this is what's crazy. Well, as you think about compromise versus conviction, you have to choose. And you need to choose before you get into that situation. So make up your mind right now. Do you want the applause of the world or do you want the applause of heaven? Decide right now whose praise you want. You can't have both. And if you decide, I want the praise of man, then do not be surprised when you take your last breath. You do not hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant." You will be hated. Therefore, choose to stand upon conviction in Christ. And decide now, before you're standing at the water cooler and your coworkers are looking at you like, how's he going to respond? Decide now before you get to the lunch table and the comments are flying around and people look at you about how you're going to respond. Decide now before the microphone is put in front of your face and the TV camera is on and you know how you're going to respond with conviction in Christ. You have to choose. Thirdly, I want you to notice the prosperity of the wicked is temporary. The prosperity of the wicked is temporary. Verse 15, the king and Haman, they're chilling in in the palace. Their feet are propped up like it's happy hour. And the city of Susa is in confusion. It's like whistling Dixie while Rome is burning. What are they doing? Talk about being oblivious to reality. Well, if you stop reading this book at chapter three, you're asking, God, what are you doing? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is Haman getting away with this? He has unlimited resources, unlimited authority, and he wants to take down your people. God, where are you? And God would tell you, be patient. Wait. Because as we're gonna see in a few weeks, when we get to chapter seven, Haman is gonna be hanging from the gallows. You see, as we look at the world around us and we're wondering, God, why are the wicked prospering? This is not fair. This is unjust. This is not right. He's reminding us here in the text that their prosperity, it's temporary. It doesn't last forever. You may be wondering, God, where are you in my life right now? Where, why does it seem like other people are prospering and they're, they're getting away with it? The Lord yeah. is like, be patient. Hear me on this. The wicked may have their day, but God will have the final say the wicked's prosperity is temporary. Doesn't last forever. And God proves us to us through the resurrection of Jesus that he will vindicate his people. It's not a dark day forever. The wicked may eat and drink and be merry, but tomorrow they die. Prosperity of the wicked is temporary. But number four, I want you to see in the text, God blesses and protects his people. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, and he tells Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And everyone who blesses you, I will bless. And everyone who curses you, I will curse. And you, through you, make sure I get the text right, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, stay with me. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Through Abraham would come forth Isaac. After Isaac would come Jacob. After Jacob comes the 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're taken into Egypt for 400 years. They're brought out of Egypt. They go into wilderness 40 years. After there, they move into the promised land. Prosperity, favor, good kings, bad kings, split kingdom, north and south. And then they stop obeying the Lord. God then takes his people into captivity through Babylon off into a distant land. Babylon loses power to Persia. King Ahasuerus sits on the throne, and here they are. And here is Haman cursing God's people. And what does God say? I will curse those who curse you. God is about to bring judgment on Haman for cursing his people. The question is, what's going on behind this? What's leading Haman to do this? And the answer is Satan. Satan wants to destroy God's People, because he knows that through the Jews will come forth a Messiah. And so, if he can exterminate the Jews, then he can foil God's plan of sending forth his son. And see, even though Pharaoh tried to kill off God's people, and even though Haman tried to kill off God's people, and even though Herod tried to kill off God's people, the unseen sovereign was still working his plan. And as we're going to see in the next few weeks, God raises up Esther for such a time as this. Right here, right now, she becomes the appointed savior for Israel. And yet there is a greater savior who is to come. One who is better and greater than Esther. One who is better and greater than Mordecai. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the blessing of Abraham through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the blessing of God. Jesus is the protector of God's people. Jesus is the one who preserves God's people. And while on the cross, it became a very dark day. God's judgment toward your sin was landing on Jesus. But Sunday was coming. God would vindicate his son. Jesus would come back to life. Light would shine forth in the darkness and Jesus would come forth never to die again. Which means this, you may be going through a dark time in your life right now. You may be in the midst of difficulty and strife and struggle and depression and how am I going to get through this? And it leads us to our impact point and it's this, when your day of darkness comes, remember the tomb is empty. Because God kept his promise from Abraham to Esther, God will keep his promise from Jesus to you. He is faithful and he will take care of you. And just as light shines the brightest against the darkest of backdrops, God's glory is shining the brightest in the resurrection against the backdrop of the darkness of the cross. And so as you think about your life right here, right now, you may be in the midst of darkness. May I say to you, look to God's Son, the light of the world, who is bringing forth light, and he proves it through his resurrection. And so as you're in struggle right now, as you're in pain, as you're wondering, how am I going to move forward, may you hear the voice of the Spirit who is reminding you that Jesus is alive. You can trust Him. He is for you and not against you. And because Jesus defeated death, you have a reason to wake up tomorrow morning. You can have purpose with song in your mouth and joy in your heart because Jesus is alive. And no matter how bad things get in your life, Christ is risen. The tomb is empty and joy is yours as you follow the unseen sovereign, Jesus Christ.